3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. Good morning, Ines. Good morning. Um... How's everybody going today in the world, but also you? I think uh, just before we go to start the show, the cookie that I order every time on Thursday fell and all the seeds scattered throughout the sh- and I was on my hands and knees doing manual labor. Cleaning up all of the seeds. I mean, look, sesame seeds without a vacuum, no joke. Absolutely no joke. Yeah, uh, not even once. <laughs> uh, yeah, on, on my way here... Um, well, I can say it now that I've arrived, but my bike light went, my backlight went out and I was like, Ooh, it's probably going to be fine. Just not ride past any cops. Um, but yes, my front light was on. I had, I have my helmet on. Uh, I ride safe all the time. Just sometimes, uh, you got, you get a dodgy charge. You don't need a light because you're a shining star. Oh my gosh. Incredible. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I feel like my partner would very much disagree. Uh, I do kind of want, I don't know if you've seen those cyclists that wear like sort of full reflective gear. And I'm kind of impressed by that, mm. but it does seem like that costs the same amount as Kevlar or something. So, um, anyway, anyway, enough of that. Um, we have, uh, some excellent stuff lined up for you today. Um, do you want to jump into it, Inez? Absolutely. So we will have a replay of a City Limits show from um, yesterday, which is Catherine Purdock, a member of People from Public Housing, Defend and Extend Public Housing, and Victorian Socialists. They joined Zeb and Kevin on 3CR's City Limits show to discuss homelessness, crisis accommodation, and the Coburg murder in. And you can catch the rest of the show here um, and tune in to City Limits on Wednesdays from 9 to 10. And then we will be joined by Miranda from Inside Out, uh, who is a queer prison abolitionist. They co-founded the Inside Out Solidarity Network seven years ago and have been one of the coordinators ever since. They've been involved in other abolitionist projects, such as the International Day of Solidarity with Trans Prisoners. They join us today to speak on the importance of the Inside Out LGBTIQA plus prisoner solidarity newsletter and fundraiser. Awesome. And... After that, we're joined by Liz Strakosh, who's a co-director at the Institute for Collaborative Race Research, which aims to do politically useful community-led research grounded in Indigenous sovereignty. And she's joining us today to discuss the Institute's submission to the Commission of Inquiry to examine Queensland Police Service's responses to domestic and family violence, which calls to defund QPS. And listeners, uh, regular listeners to the show will remember that we started a bit of a conversation about this with Dr. Amanda Porter a few weeks ago. Liz is a white Jewish heritage settler and an academic at Melbourne University whose work focuses on Indigenous policy, bureaucratic violence, and comparative colonialism. And finally, I'm so excited to announce that comics journalist and cartoonist Sam Wolman joins us to speak about his powerhouse new comic, Our Members Be Unlimited, which is a beautifully illustrated narrative of workers and their unions that inspires hope, solidarity, and radical action. Our Members Be Unlimited is published by Scribe and is now onto a second printing after selling out since its original publication in late May this year. So if you didn't manage to grab uh, a copy, the second print, I believe, uh, came out or 
is due to come out shortly. Um, the, the reprint was on the 8th of August, so I'm waiting for my hard copy. I read, uh, I read through this uh, online on, on a little PDF, but I'm very excited to be able to hold a copy in my own hands. So Scribe Publishing, folks, check it out. Our members be unlimited. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated programme of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Si Parla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 18th of August. Listeners, please be advised that these headlines contain mention of First Nations people who have died. A coronial inquest into the death of three women in Dumaji from preventable diseases continues in North Queensland this week. The inquest is investigating the adequacy of care provided by Dumaji Hospital and Gigi Healing. The three young women, whose families requested they be referred to as Kaya, Miss Sandy and Betty, died over a one-year period between 2019 and 2020 from complications associated with rheumatic heart disease. The inquest heard that since those deaths, just 4% of people living with similar conditions in Dumaji had received their proper doses of life-saving medication. The families of the three women say systemic, ingrained racism is a contributing factor to this medical violence and are calling for more funding for First Nations health care, including for independent advocates and liaisons for First Nations patients. In other news, a historic bill to establish a Victorian treaty authority has passed the state parliament this week, setting up for work on treaty making to begin as early as next year. The authority will oversee treaty talks and resolve any disputes between the State Government and the First People's Assembly of Victoria. It will sit outside the usual government bureaucracy, something that was advocated for strongly by First Nations representatives, who say this independence from the public service is essential to the trust and faith of First Nations communities. The Authority will seek to establish a self-determination fund for First Nations communities in Victoria so that negotiations with the government can be set on a more quote-unquote equal footing. Also in headlines this week, the University of Melbourne Student Union has successfully passed a motion calling for divestment and boycott of Israeli institutions, researchers and academics who support the Israeli oppression of Palestine. The successful vote followed a withdrawal of the motion in May this year, forced by legal threats and protests that the Australian Lawyers Alliance say represent a serious attack on freedom of speech. The new successful motion was put forward by Students for Palestine, Unimelb, which has Jewish, Palestinian and First Nations members. And I do want to also let listeners know that there has been um, some really strong condemnation of the use of lawfare tactics to suppress student voices here, including an excellent piece by Tasnim Samak that is in Overland. So you can check that out by going to Overland's website. And finally, in headlines... Logging operations at Mount Disappointment were halted earlier this week by a group of peaceful protesters calling for an immediate end to native forest logging in Victoria. 
A state government bill passed in early August will see people face fines of up to $21,000 or 12 months imprisonment for entering forests scheduled for logging, which protesters say is an attempt to prevent public scrutiny from Vic Forest. Mount Disappointment is one of the last forest stands close to Melbourne and is a vital carbon sink that provides habitat for a range of fauna. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 18th of August. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Fat Chat, a new show joining the 3CR Radical Radio Wednesday Home Time team at 6pm. Fat Chat will present the voices of self-advocates with cognitive disabilities. Voice at the Table, VAT, provides practical information to ensure people with cognitive disabilities have a real and equal voice at the table. Welcome, I'm Warren. I'm a graduate of the Voice at the Table training and presenter of the Fat Chat podcast. That Chat presents self-advocates in their own words and voice, showcasing how self-advocates are changing their world. Joining the 3CR Wednesday Hometime family from the 24th of August at 6pm and the 4th Wednesday of every month after that. 3CR, the voice of your community. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamoir, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight, I can hear the voices of my elders. Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to go to a track now. This one is one from 2020 by Maisha. This is Twisting Words. i 
That was Twisting Words by Maisha. And now we will have a replay of the City Limits show with the guest Catherine Murdoch, a member of People from Public Housing, Defend and Extend Public Housing and Victorian Socialists, who joined Zeb and Kevin to discuss homelessness accommodation and Coburg murder in. Hi, Catherine. How are you going? Good morning. I'm great, thank you. I have recovered from the flu, um, which took about two weeks to do, so grateful that I was housed and warm during that period because my heating's included in my rent and I was able to access the health services I needed. Not so if you're on the street or um, trying to pay rent in private. The private rental market, hey. Yeah, we were talking earlier with Shane about that, that, you know, there was even a story in the Herald Sun about the fact that many people were shivering in rental accommodation because the, the houses just didn't get warm. Absolutely. And when I rented privately in regional South Australia, um, I couldn't afford heating and I was in a low insulation house. Um, so you just pack on the clothes, you move your mattress into the lounge room during the winter months. Friends, when they come over for dinner, bring their long johns. So halfway through dinner, if the cold starts to get too much, you just pop on a few more layers. So I totally understand that. <laughs> and having my my heating included, and especially because everyone in my building is over 55, is just the relief and comfort that gets you through winter. Yeah, good on you. Well, that's, that's great. And we didn't, I think we were assuming now people know who you are, but we should have mentioned Catherine, of course, belongs to a number of public housing active groups, including yep. people from public housing. and Defend and extend public housing. Yes. Um, Defend and extend public housing and Victorian socialists, yes. Yeah, all that. Um, yes. Last last month, Catherine, we ended, we ended up running out of time talking about mm. the problem that we mentioned. It was the motel in Coburg that led us to uh, into the conversation, yes. but where a lot of people coming out of jail go and it, the conditions there were just absolutely dreadful. We talked about the whole problem of crisis accommodation for people like that. Um, there's a, It's a real problem, isn't it? It is an absolute minefield and it has been, you know, for 20 years. So why nothing's been done is just another question we put up for the politicians. Um, You know, an example, yeah, like one of the Salvation Army sites in the inner city suburbs, I know through a reputable source that over 400 people have died on sites there. Now, those deaths are not recorded, just like deaths on the street aren't recorded. I've got my own lived experience um, and my peer group through CoHealth in the CBD, we meet fortnightly. And some of my group, um, my colleagues, are in um, rooming houses at the moment and generally our experience is beyond horrific and that's why a lot of people choose to stay on the street. Um, people leaving prison are not provided with housing. So, you know, that's another invitation for them to go straight back inside when things get too hard. Um, single mums living in motel rooms. Um, you've got refugees, asylum seekers living um, in motel rooms. You know, um, it's, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, my experience at the Coburg Motoring, just to recap, was back in 2016, and because it's next to a park that I love, I booked accommodation there when I was homeless, and I was self-funding, 
and there were a number of drug cartels operating out of there. And um, I had firstly my purse, then by lunchtime my phone was gone, and that night my car was gone. And the drug cartel had set up some 12-year-old youths from Cranbourne to steal that car. Obviously, I'd rubbed their nose up the wrong way, um, and those were the consequences. So I actually, as soon as I discovered my car was stolen, I packed up my stuff and I walked onto the street. I stayed on back streets, and I was on, I think it was about six degrees that morning. I walked about 12 k's and went, followed up different avenues for accommodation until someone was able to pick me up in Smith Street or Gertrude Street early in the morning, like at about 7 o'clock, and come to my aid. Mm. Yeah, it's a tragedy, isn't it? And it's ironic, as you say, because it's right next door to a quite a beautiful park and picnic area. But um... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, recently, one Sunday morning, I came across a young man very distressed. He'd just missed a train, and I approached him to see if he was okay. And he'd been staying in a motel... Um, down at Mentone Mordialic Parkdale Way. The name escapes me at the moment. He'd stayed at the motel that night. He has a disability and he has a number of mental health issues that he manages really well. And while he was asleep, people had gone through his room, had stolen a $1,000 worth of um, electrical equipment that he had on him, had stolen all his vapes, had stolen his cash and he was devastated and traumatised. To think while you were sleeping, hordes of people have been into your room and removed, you know, what possessions you do have. So I was able to ring his parents to let him know he was going to be on the next train to assist him with a couple of phone calls and to see him safely on the next train. But people are at more risk in these rooming houses and so-called accommodations that people provide as crisis accommodation than they are on the street in most instances. And we're not even touching on bed bugs, on mould, etc. Yeah, that's truly awful. So what are you... What are your, like, top calls um, for what needs to be done straight away? Well, I really support the actions of the Geelong um, Housing Action Group. Um, They had a rally um, during Homelessness Week and their demands were really feasible in terms of capping the numbers of B&Bs that can be operated in any area, whether it's regional, that applies to inner city as well. Um, making sure that people have access to wraparound services because if you're in one of those, you know, you need support, you need the mental health support, you Mm -hmm. need physical support, you know, you need GPs, you need food services, you know, defending renters' rights, um, making sure developers can't sit on land parcels, buildings can't be left vacant, you know, we've said for goodness sake, give us 70,000 public homes tomorrow and we'll begin to scratch the surface. Now, all these empty buildings that are left unutilised, people can move into those buildings. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, You know, the job seeker income support payments need to allow people to be able to survive, as Kevin discussed earlier today, um, and stopping the privatisation of public housing and developing a first housing, um, a finished housing model first. 
first model, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so there are things, there are core things that we don't need a lot of money for that we can do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've talked about COVID, we've talked about other things, a GP who's a, a Greens councillor, a Greens member, um, spoke at that rally about her inability to deliver holistic care to clients, patients. The fact that someone comes in, if they've got diabetes and they're homeless, they can't keep their medication refrigerated. Um, people will be ill and they've got to go back into the cold and the wet on the street. There isn't crisis accommodation she can refer them to. Um, you know, the services are not there to support and the services that are in place now are strained and they're not being delivered the funding they need either. Yeah. Um, you did briefly mention um, that it was Homelessness Week earlier in the month and um, you actually sent us a poem that you wrote um, that's titled Rooming House Blues in Richmond. Um, yes. I was wondering whether you would be up to actually like performing the poem um, on City Limits. Absolutely. Um, so that's part of the co-health peer group with lived experience and um, there'll be some other writing poems submitted by my peers in the next issue that will be up on the website www.needtoknowhomeless.org in the next edition because it talks, we all talk about our experiences. Um, so mine was Rooming House Blues in Richmond, locked in, four walls, the window only opens a slit, my neighbour rages, hits walls, throws furniture and slams the door continuously. My other neighbour is high on ice. Music blares out, thump, thump, on repeat, 24 hours straight. Sometimes it turns into days. A death, cause unknown to us. Another overdose. A seizure, a silent screen for help. I hit the street and I marvel at heritage-protected architecture. Church Street, wide street lined with trees. Beauty that is a garden. I walk, I walk, I walk. Down to the river and the creek, Abbotsford Convent, Dites Falls, Yarrabing Park, Fitzroy Gardens and the CBD. Daily I'm up and I'm out. Community is my sanity. Familiar faces of the regulars living homeless on Swan Street. Smiling staff in the 7-Eleven corner store. Richmond Library, my haven. Computers, books, newspapers, magazines, events, all for free. We know each other by name. We talk about life. A lounge chair, a window with a view. Sun streaming in. I am safe. I can breathe. All churches' food banks supplies me each week. Don't let the rooming house blues stick to you. <laughs> well done, Catherine. That's that's very good. And that's wonderful, actually. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. What was the website again? www.needtoknow.com Homeless. Homeless. Homeless.org. Yep. And you mentioned and so next time. You mentioned about next time. When when is when is the next time? You mentioned next time, but you didn't say when. 
Oh, when the next edition will be out? Yes, yes. Yep, it'll be September. So we're just finalising it next week. Um, but every monthly edition of um, stays up on the website, as well as all the services that people can access to help them survive if they're doing it tough, living on the street, or not being able to survive on the low income that Job Seeker is. Oh, good. That's excellent. And um, we mentioned earlier about this article in The Age a couple of weeks ago about the Northcote redevelopment where um, yep. multi-millionaires, some of the richest people in the country, have, have built it and have put, the, um, of course, the very expensive or the, the elite apartments overlooking the best view and then what used to be the public housing view is now the other side looking out on High Street. Um, but this seems to this is a constant with all this so-called redevelopment, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I want to go back to the point Shane made about the propaganda, the spin that we get fed about social housing, community housing and, you know, mixing it up when exactly right. It's all about money for the developers, the deals that councils and politicians and do with those. And um, that is... Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. It's spot on the money. You know, the thing is, I live in over 55 and I'm one of the younger people in my building. So we have this spirit of community in public housing. We watch out for each other. We help each other. And, you know, an example is one of my neighbours is in his mid-70s and he doesn't have family support in Melbourne. I don't have family support in Melbourne. If he has a fall, I know he's had a fall because he calls out. I can call security. We can get access to his home. We can check he's okay. We can call medical help if it isn't already on the way. And, you know, this is the spirit of community. As the systems fail and fail and fail, aged care, health, mental health, you know, Centrelink, as they all fall over, it's each of us helping each other to stay afloat and supporting each other and caring for each other that is, it's the vein, you know, it's the vein in the heart of compassion that our politicians don't have. Mm. And in this story, it becomes apparent, something we've talked about time and again, but it becomes apparent that they, that they call them the, the group representing not-for-profit housing groups delivering thousands of new homes is the Community Housing Industry Association, um, yes. etc. And, and, and the whole thrust of the story is that while the Minister is saying how wonderful it's all going to be, not one, not one place will be public housing at all. Exactly. And then, you know, the places that are available, they're not affordable. They're still not affordable to someone living on New Start or a pension. So it's just absolute, it's just a farce. An absolute farce. Yeah, we've had a great morning this morning cheering people up here, Catherine. Um, but, well, uh, I thought but... <laughs> you've got to deliver the honest news. <laughs> That's true. And That's I true. think most of your listeners are conscious. So there's no bombs in there that are going to shock them because we're all <laughs> fighting and educating and advocating for the same thing. We're all in it together. That's right. Yeah, we um, are. And um, but look, but thanks not for in that. The Andrew thanks, thanks for your context. We're, um, we're, we're out of time, but look, thanks for that, and thanks for your poem. And we'll talk again next month. 
You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. And everyone's just got to get active and speak up. Thanks, Catherine. Good. And you're listening to... Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Catherine Murdoch, a member of People for Public Housing, Defend and Extend Public Housing, and Victorian Socialists who joined Zeb and Kevin on 3CR City Limits show yesterday to discuss homelessness, crisis accommodation, and the Coburg Motor Inn. You can catch the rest of the show by going to three, uh, sorry, by going to three CR's website and looking up city limits. And you can tune into city limits on Wednesday mornings from 9 to 10 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. We might go to another track now. So it is 7.30 in the morning, and we're going to hear this new one from the Marindas and Samuel Gaskin. This is Rain. Find a way, find a way to discover There's nothing wrong Find a way, find a way to recover Was there all along Fire Rain Beyond the clouds to 
that was the new one by the Marindas and Samuel Gaskin, Rain. That was pretty exciting, pretty beautiful, and you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Alright, we might head back into another track, and this one is a remix of Genesis Ozu's Waiting On Ya. Dows for sale, dows for sale. Smiles for sale, smiles for sale. Said I just did my little pause into your skin and to your mind, baby. I can be a king, can be the one you'll give your crown, baby. Lay you on my altar and I peace until it's time for you. Till it's time for you. I say you sink into my ocean, to my portion on your tongue with it. You don't need your homies, I can be your number one with it. Wrap you in my blanket so I never see the sun with you. See the sun with you.
So good. Uh, that was Waiting On You by Genesis Owusu, and that was a remix of that track. Uh, so good to have a DJ back in the studio. Thank you, Inez. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Wick Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The Forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research a 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah... Yenna Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And now we are joined by Miranda from Inside Out, who is a queer prison abolitionist, and they co-founded Inside Out Solidarity Network seven years ago and have been one of the coordinators ever since. They have been involved in other abolitionist projects, and they join us today to speak on the importance of the Inside Out um, LGBTIQA plus prison solidarity newsletter and fundraiser. Thanks so much. For joining us here today <laughs> on Thursday, sorry about that. No worries. Uh, well, could we start with uh, what Inside Out is and how it came to be, particularly as we're talking to one of the founders? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the project um, started about seven years ago, and our focus is on supporting queer and trans people in prison uh, around Australia, and we also have some people in New Zealand. Um, and so at the moment, we have about 300 members. So that's um, people all around the country, uh, queer and trans people in different prisons. Um, and the main focus of the project is the newsletter. So what we do is every three months we put out a newsletter, and that is um, something that people can write into. So all of the content in the newsletter is written by queer people in prison and it's all for other queer people in prison. So people write in and we put it together and then we send it out to all of our members. Um, and I guess that's been 
you know, that's kind of the foundation of the project because what that does is it allows people to build their own sense of community through that form of, like, connecting to people around the country who have similar experiences to them and who they can talk to and also often people then kind of develop their own friendships within that or, like, write to each other and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it started seven years ago. Sort of how it got started was that at the time... Um, I had a friend who was in prison and um, they really wanted to see some more like support for trans people in prison so they wanted to organize this international day of solidarity for trans people in prison so I gave them a hand on doing that and what I sort of learned from that is that around the world there was lots of like amazing projects that were supporting queer and trans people in prisons but in Australia we didn't have anything like this and so yeah my friend Amandine and I decided we would see you know what 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 we could do here and so we we started out by putting an ad in a magazine that goes into different prisons and a call out to see who was interested and at that time we got about 15 people wrote back to us um and then yeah from there kind of developed the idea um for the newsletter and sort of have been going and building ever since and it's been amazing like some of those people those 15 people you know are still involved and still writing every every newsletter and um, yeah, it's been amazing to see it grow over the time. And mostly it's grown from word of mouth, so people inside, like, sharing it and talking about it. Um, and, and, yeah, that's kind of how we've, we've now developed into having about 300 people um, across the country who are, who are part of the network. Wow, it sounds like, well, it is just so incredible that it has been born out of wanting to connect and that it spreads through word of mouth and now, you know, there are consistent members and it's, clearly so so vital that's pretty amazing yeah and I know that we know that incarceration can be a particularly isolating experience but particularly for queer and trans people um, many who are currently held in prisons of the wrong gender or being kept in prolonged solitary confinement for their you know quote-unquote safety which is not that <laughs> and despite this yeah. being you know recognized inhumane under international law um and you touched on this before, but are there any moments that really stand out to you in regards to how the newsletter has helped combat some of this isolation? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things is that, um, yeah, the isolation is like, you know, I think for any people, even like people on the outside, queer and trans people, like it can be a really isolating experience and to, you know, like I feel like we seek out our community so that we can have that solidarity. And it's really hard when you're in, on the inside and you don't have access to the internet, you don't have access to, you know, events, and it's really hard to make those connections. And I think that's something that has been really great and really good feedback we've had about the newsletter is that ability to, to build community. Um, and, yeah, I think something that has been amazing is, like, people being able to share their stories and find, you know, give each other advice and find comfort in, in kind of understanding each other's stories as well. And like you said, like, you know, like the prison system, I mean, it's terrible for everyone, right? Um, but there's like particular aspects of it that are really impact queer and trans people and mm -hmm. like, you know, the fact that people, you know, like it's really hard you know, like a lot of a lot of our members who are trans women are in male prisons, and they talk to us about their experiences there, and that 
they they face a lot of violence, a lot of harassment. There's not access to um, the gender-affirming things that they want to buy. Like, for example, they have access to buy things like toiletries, underwear and everything like that, but there's like a mail list that goes to the male prisons and the women's shopping list that goes to the women's prison. It's really hard for them to get access to the one that isn't, you know, the, the, the prison that they're assigned to. Um, and, you know, a lot of people aren't able to, like get their name changed and recognised in the prison. So they have to be having all of their mail addressed to a name that is their dead name. And, you know, another thing is that is like the level of like medical neglect, like people don't have access to hormones or, the you know, going to get um, mental health care or, you know, all of the things that, that, that people need. So I think that, that those experiences are really traumatic and I think something that can be really powerful people can then share and also give advice on how to like navigate that system um uh yeah and like you said like I think one other aspect is the fact that then often what happens to people is that for you know claiming for their own safety they're put into solitary confinement because they have been exposed to to violence and discrimination but then that's just a whole nother layer of trauma to be you know, isolated and locked in solitary confinement as well, and and that and that isolation is then like you know extra hard. So yeah, I think that has been something that has kind of stood out, like people being able to share those experiences, even though they are, you know, it, it's really hard to hear. Um, I think it has been a really powerful thing for other people within that system to to be able to share their stories with each other. Yeah, it sounds like a really important way um, and powerful way to build community, uh, particularly when, you know, for us on the outside, maybe we can, yeah, as you said, like go to events and build communities that way, but I can't can't imagine how much more difficult it would have been, um, yeah, being incarcerated. But on top of yeah, that, definitely. also with um, COVID and, you know, with the reduction in visitation and the lack of adequate health care on top of like what you've already described before, um, I'm, I'm sure this would have increased the isolation and the ability to receive support. How did you see COVID affecting people in prison? Yeah, it was definitely like has been a really hard time because it meant that, well, first of all, the risk is really high that if it gets into the prison, it goes around the prison really fast and people were really anxious about it. Um, but then, you know, the fact that the response this from the system is like you know having having this additional isolation where people didn't have access to visits um people didn't have you know uh, uh, there's times when people are actually locked down because of the risk so you know they're not actually able to they're, they're like stuck in their cells and so you know over time this has really like weighed on people um particularly like yet yeah, the, the lack of access to to visitation um and yeah, sort of early on in the pandemic, we did like a community survey of our members to kind of find out what was happening for them and, um, and to sort of see yeah, what kind of issues were coming up. And yeah, it kind of just really brought home that there just wasn't, there just wasn't care being taken for people. Like either people were being put at risk and, um, or, or people were being like locked down and we had like 
joined like this, you know, there was an international call to, to have people to be released from prison and there was countries all around the world who were actually like letting people out um, of prison because of the risk of, of COVID and, um, and that just, you know, that just didn't happen here. There was like some promises of people if they were like particularly unwell would get out but there wasn't there wasn't really a follow through and then the other thing is like you know people were being locked down all of these extra hours and then they were told well they you know they would have a bit of time taken off the end of their sentence to kind of make up for it but also like you know not like a follow through on this and also that's not really good enough when people are like in an in the moment are experiencing this trauma of this like you know basically being like you know in solitary confinement or locked in their cells yeah, I think from what you have just mentioned is, you know, people are able to make choices <laughs> and policy decisions uh, when they choose, and it is not something that is unmovable, um, even though I know the carceral system is throughout our entire society, that, you know, change is definitely possible. And I think also for, ab- for abolitionists, I think when you're starting off, um, like venturing into that journey, it can seem really like such a foreign concept. And I think when I started also educating myself and learning about the history and seeing how abolition could have played such an important role in my life and in my community's lives, it started to really click for me, I think. And I think for you, would you mind maybe sharing, like, what do you wish people knew about abolition? And do you recommend any, like, starting resources for people who are curious who obviously see this inhumane treatment and, you know, hope for a better world. Mm. Yeah, I think, like, what you touched on there about, like, you know, coming from that conversation you just had been about... It was amazing was seeing these like places around the world just suddenly being, like, letting out all of these people. And I think that's just, like... You know, obviously it's not, like, the ultimate solution. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they, they they didn't... You know, they just let people out. They didn't give people support and stuff like that. But I do think it kind of makes you realise, yeah, as you said, it's just a decision, a policy decision. And, like, people think it's impossible that we couldn't have prisons, you know, but actually, actually it is. Like, it could just happen and that we can make that happen by talking about abolition and, and working towards abolition. And I think, yeah, I, I guess to answer your question, like, I think... I think the thing that I come up against most is, you know, when talking about abolition is that people are, you know, afraid of, like, what will, what could replace prisons or how will we make people accountable for harm cause or how will we stop the fact that people are hurting each other in the world. And I think, I think when you, like, dig into it, then you realise that, I mean, it's true that there's harm going on in the world and people are causing each other harm, but prison is, like, in no way offering any solution to that like it doesn't it doesn't stop that harm from happening and doesn't address it and in fact it just causes more violence because it perpetuates violence against people and so yeah I think like I think it's great to learn about different ways that we can think about the world differently in terms of like understanding we can't like punish punish away the social problems like you know if we want to address the fact that harm happens in society we need to dig down into what are the root causes of that we need to support people to address harm in their communities and and work out solutions in their communities and and that there's and that that work happens all the time like it, it those solutions already exist like there's a lot of communities doing that already and there's a lot of communities who 
you know, have, have to do that because, you know, to call the police is never a safe option. So I think we can look to examples all around the world of that happening. Um, and, yeah, I, one website that I think is quite good, there's, like, um, it, it's, it's American-based, but I still think it has, like, lots of useful um, information on it, even though it's just specific to there, is called One Million Experiments. And they have all these examples of different projects um, that are, like, offering alternatives to police and prisons. And why it's called a million experiments is that it's sort of saying, like, you know, we it, there's, like, a million different ways that we can, like, do this differently. And, yeah, I think that that's, that can be a good resource for, for getting inspired about how we could actually create alternatives in our communities. Yeah, that's such fantastic insight. And we'll link uh, One Million Experiments in the podcast as well. And lastly, just for our final question, uh, could you mind... Sorry, <laughs> could you speak a little bit on the newsletter fundraiser and why, um, yeah, clearly it's very important and it builds so much community, um, but, yeah, I guess what is the fundraiser for as well? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess we've been going seven years now and we've this whole time we've been unfunded, so a lot of it is just, you know, us putting in our own resources, but it's because we've grown so much and we have 300 members, like, it is quite expensive to run because not only we do we the newsletter, but, like, people write to us all the time, so it's, like, a high cost for postage. Um, so, yeah, we're really trying to get, like, um, we, our aim is to get 15 grand, which should take us through, you know, that's about two years for us worth of, like, being able to run the project. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, I, and, and I think it's a, you know, it's a really great thing to donate to, obviously, I think that, but also because, like, you know, pretty much every dollar we get is, like, another stamp that we can send. Like, yeah. we, that's pretty much most of our costs. Um, so, yeah, it would be really great if people could donate or, or share, um, share the fundraiser um, and help us to, to, to get to that because we also, we're hoping to kind of grow the network as well and, you know, I think it's something that has held us back is that it is a struggle to, like, be able to afford the cost at the moment. So, yeah, we definitely need a lot of support. Yeah, absolutely. So we will link the newsletter and promote it and the fundraiser as well if, if people want to join. But thank you so much for joining us here today, Red. It was a really wonderful and important conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've just heard from Miranda from Inside Out, and we spoke about the um, Inside Out LGBTIQA Prisoner Solidarity Newsletter and Fundraiser. And you can find the fundraiser on chuff.org slash project slash inside dash out. And if you just type in LGBTIQA Prisoner Solidarity Newsletter, you'll find it. And we'll also link it. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. 
Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by Liz Strakosh, who's a co-director at the Institute for Collaborative Race Research, which aims to do politically useful community-led research grounded in Indigenous sovereignty. And Liz is joining us today to discuss the Institute's submission to the Commission of Inquiry to examine Queensland Police Service responses to domestic and family violence, which is calling to defund QPS. And Liz is a white Jewish heritage settler and an academic at Melbourne University who's work focuses on Indigenous policy, bureaucratic violence, and comparative colonialism. Liz, good morning. Thank you so much for inviting ITRR on today. Um, And I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm in from the land of the Yagara people. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I thought we could start off by briefly talking about the origins of the Commission of Inquiry into Queensland Police Service Responses to Domestic and Family Violence. Now, we had the opportunity recently to hear from Dr. Amanda Porter about this, but could you remind listeners about why this inquiry was called and what it investigates? Okay, definitely. Um, First, I would just like to acknowledge that um, while I was the one available to come and speak today, um, I'm speaking about collective work that's done by ICRR that um, has been led by Professor Chelsea Watergo, Dr David Singh, Kevin Yaoye, Amy Maguire and lots of others. So I just want to acknowledge their contribution. So the Commission of Inquiry, which we've been um, called to submit an expert report to and to give evidence to, which we gave a couple of weeks ago, actually came out of another process in Queensland, the Women's Safety and Justice Task Force which was aiming to find new approaches to the crisis of domestic and family violence that particularly affects women, children and gender diverse people. And this is a really, really genuine issue and a crisis that needs better approaches. But what we found as ICRR during the process of the task force when we made several submissions together with sisters inside was that despite Indigenous women being the most affected by this issue, they weren't being heard by the task force. And what we were saying and what many Indigenous um, women and gender diverse people were saying is that police are a core part of the problem of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. They're not protectors for Indigenous women. They're perpetrators. Um, That for Indigenous people calling police routinely leads to women who are victims being mischaracterised as perpetrators and caught in a net of criminalisation that leads directly to incarceration and child removal. But one of the pre-drawn conclusions of this task force, it became pretty clear, was that they wanted to introduce legislation to criminalise coercive control and Mm. expand the powers of police um, in relation to domestic and family violence. And coercive control is a really big issue. It's sort of a a non-physical matrix of abusive practices um, that entrap a victim that include things like surveillance and financial control and psychological abuse. However, while acknowledging the gravity of that practice, the reality is that criminalising this would be a disaster for Indigenous women who are already subject to misidentification Mm -hmm. by the state. Um, 
And that's especially in a state like Queensland, which is just so enthusiastic about locking people up, especially women. So some um, data just came out yesterday, actually, that there's been a 338% increase uh, in the incarceration of women over the past 14 years and that Aboriginal women make up a third of those cases. So with this pipeline to incarceration, that criminalising coercive control is just not the answer. Um, but they yeah. legislated this anyway, and I think you can read this inquiry into the the um, behaviour of police in relation to domestic violence as the task force confession to some of the really deep concerns that were raised about police behaviour. And so we felt, ICRR and Sisters Inside, that it was really important that we contribute to this new process in solidarity with this huge number of incarcerated Indigenous women, including many who shared their stories with us. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think your joint submission to this inquiry really spells out quite clearly that uh, this is something that is a structural, systemic and situated issue. And you really compellingly drew on language from the federal government's violence against women. Let's stop it at the start campaign to structure your key concerns around criminalization, entrapment and murder. And I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of assessing these concerns within a framework that's grounded in understanding racial violence and settler colonialism and how this has informed your submission. Because as you've already touched on, there really is um, such a key issue at play in terms of the criminalization of Aboriginal women. Yeah, so what we were trying to say in that submission and what we tried to expand on in the expert report that's coming out soon is that Indigenous people have a different relationship with the Queensland Police Service than settlers do. Um, the relationship between Indigenous people and the police is one of violent control, and um, it has always been that way in order to serve the purposes of colonisation and to maintain racial order, whereas the relationship between um, settlers and the Queensland Police Service might look more like one of consent. Um, or even collusion in certain cases. And so while we, in the submission, we put forward a lot of evidence about the um, over-policing of Indigenous women as perpetrators, their criminalisation, but also the way they are under-policed as victims. Mm -hmm. So their victimhood is never regarded as legitimate. Um, they're always seen as responsible for the violence they experience. Um, or that violence is completely erased. But one of the things that we did find as a result of that submission is that the police and the government will always read those statistics back to um, kind of implicitly regard Indigenous women again as responsible for the rates of violence they experience, which we know are about 32%, um, 32 times higher mm. than non-Indigenous women. So in the expert report, we really tried to make tangible the reality of the racialized relationship between Indigenous people and police in Queensland. And Queensland is quite a specific place in relation to its policing, but we certainly don't want to suggest it's exceptional. There's a violent relationship between Indigenous people and police all over Australia. But what we forward is a history of the Queensland Police, starting with the original police service here, which is the Queensland Native Mounted Police that was 
established in 1848 and which for many, many years was much bigger than the regular police force that was specifically tasked with what was called dispersal, which is codes for mass murder and the dispossession and forcible removal of Indigenous people from their land. That continued all through the 18th century, um, oh, sorry, all through the 19th century into the 20th century, and that after that, police were directly involved as protectors, protectors um, in inverted commas, in the protection era, um, enforcing Indigenous peoples' incarceration on missions, catching runaways, removing children, forcing people to go to work where the pay was kept and stolen by government, and, of course, colluding and participating in the extraordinarily violent history of, of mass sexual um, mm. predation by settlers of Indigenous women and girls. Yeah. So, yeah, we really wanted to show that the relationship now is the product of an unchanging um, structural relationship in which police have been at the front line of colonisation. They've been policing for the interests of colonists. And often, in fact, the earliest native police were funded by crowdsourcing from colonists. Mm. And um, settlers were always demanding more police, more police. And we can see the same sort of dynamics operating here. Yeah. And, I mean, if we think about the sort of role as police, as primarily the defenders of, of property and how property exists it, uh, on, on this continent, um, as a result of the dispossession of Indigenous peoples, um, you know, it, it really is um, impossible to to sort of separate out uh, the colonial function of policing from uh, the way that any um, police initiatives or responses work um, at, at, in in the present day. So um, I'm I'm also wondering if we could focus uh, a bit on the submission's conclusion that um, police cannot be the solution to the crisis of domestic violence, and therefore that the Queensland Police Service must ultimately be defunded because, as you mentioned, Aboriginal women are um, disproportionately criminalized but also underserved as victims of violence um, but of course what you're not asking for is for more funding to go into policing to you know to correct that disparity as it were so what kinds of structural change do you and your co-authors hope to see and how do you propose that any solutions to this crisis be assessed what we said was that defunding the police in and of itself is a solution and deauthorizing them in relation to their policing of domestic violence is a solution and that is because police are kind of ground zero um, when it comes to the structure of violence that enables the rates of domestic violence to exist and that's why we use the language of let's stop it at the start, let's go back to the actual origins mm. of this violence because we identified police, um, their disinterest, their over-policing, their under-policing as creating a culture of impunity in which Indigenous women, girls and gender-diverse people could experience violence, but perpetrators would know that they were safe. So that is what actually creates the culture of fear mm-hmm. um, and the reality of intense violence for Aboriginal women. So what we said was actually removing police um, is going to remove a perpetrator from a violent relationship. So we wouldn't ask a victim in a domestic violence situation to stay with their perpetrator, but just give them better training. Um, actually, what we needed 
um, was a non-violent solution to this violence that actually reduced the rates of violence overall. And we argued that you can't train police out of racial violence in a context in which they're actually key to enforcing a racial order. Mm-hmm. So we did, though, say, um, you know, talking about defunding, we were talking about this in um, the Brisbane Magistrate Court and um, there was a bit of pill clutching because that language is quite um, confronting to a lot of people. But what we actually did was try to break down what that might mean um, and we were talking about the Aboriginal community-controlled sector. A lot of other people in the Commission had been talking about kind of these islands of best practice where Indigenous community organisations could co-respond um, to domestic violence incidents with police or they could um, even provide alternative mechanisms. And we said, yep, that's great, but what we need to actually look at is the fact that the Aboriginal community controlled sector has been systematically defunded for the past 20 years and it got a real body blow in the Indigenous Advancement Strategy in 2014 when it lost a great deal of funding and security. So if the Commission is actually interested in allowing or facilitating Indigenous communities to have alternative responses to violence and to hold police accountable, there needs to be a systematic refunding of that sector and a support for their authority. And that is what defunding the police and um, justice divestment on a, on a large scale would look like. So it's basically about funding and supporting what is already happening in communities mm-hmm. who already have to find ways to respond to domestic violence because the police are not either not safe or just not interested. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it, it's very important to emphasize there, as you said, you know, this work is already happening. And in our previous interview, we spoke with one of the co-founders of the Inside Out newsletter about how this work is happening. People are coming up with creative solutions or have had their own solutions. But the problem is that uh, this is occurring within, uh, you know, within a system of structural racial violence, colonization and dispossession. Um, and so there has to be active initiatives to, to support this work. So, Liz, just to wrap up, um, can you let listeners know a little bit about the Institute and where they can find more of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research's work? Um, yes, thanks, Priya. So the Institute for Collaborative Race Research is an organisation that a bunch of us set up. It's Indigenous-led, basically to do the work on um, identifying and fighting racism in research that wasn't really possible in universities. Because um, even though universities are sort of meant to be bastions of, of free thought, they're very resistant in Australia to genuinely confronting issues of racism. So we created this space so that we could speak fearlessly about the operation of racial violence in Australia and um, try to be accountable to communities and do work. Mm-hmm. This is of use. So Chelsea has talked about us as, as nerds, nerds for hire. How mm-hmm. can we put um, our thinking and academic work to use while acknowledging that actually the most powerful anti-racist theorising takes place outside the academy. Mm -hmm. And so we really try to um, disrupt the relationship of experts and and research subjects, even as we're often called upon to be experts and recognise that we need to take our lead from 
um, black people fighting racism in the street. Mm-hmm. So we're funded independently. Um, we do paid work. We've also got um, a large number of um, Patreons, which is really, really helpful. And you can see more about the kind of work we're involved in on Twitter. We're also on Instagram. And um, we have a website with a lot of our submissions and reports. Excellent. Well, we'll provide links to all of that in the show notes. But, Liz, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Thank you, Priya. And that was Liz Strakosh, a co-director at the Institute for Collaborative Race Research, which aims to do politically useful community-led research grounded in Indigenous sovereignty. And Liz joined us to uh, discuss the Institute's submission, joint submission with Sisters Inside to the Commission of Inquiry to examine Queensland Police Service's responses to domestic and family violence and ultimately calling to defund QPS. Panoply, panorama, panpipe. Pansy? Aha! Pansexual! Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. We are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're joined now by comics journalist and cartoonist Sam Woolman to speak about his powerhouse comic, Our Members Be Unlimited, which is a beautifully illustrated narrative of workers and their unions that inspires hope, solidarity, and radical action. And Our Members Be Unlimited is published by Scribe and is now onto a second printing after selling out since its original publication in late May this year. So congratulations, Sam, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Sorry about my morning voice. No. I'm kind of rubbing my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you sound fine. Um, I, it is just really exciting to be talking about this, and it's it's so great that it's gone into reprint because I'm sure there have been plenty of people who've been keen to get a copy and haven't been able to yet. Um, so I thought we could start off by hearing a bit about your own journey into union organizing and how that's shaped you. Yeah, um, I guess. I was a member of a union, um, like when I was in warehousing and in disability work when I was younger, but like a very passive member, didn't really understand the orientation that it's like a way to democratize your workplace and that you have to do a bunch of that yourself. I kind of like saw it as a Netflix subscription or something like that, but eventually started learning about the history of it and stepping up a bit more and got elected as a delegate at a call center, um, did some activism there with my workmates and then eventually went on to become a, an official and a organiser with um, United Workers Union, which I did until 
on and off kind of till like last year, really. But eventually I was like, these, these drawings take a long time to draw. And I, I think I, I'm probably better at drawing than I was at organizing. So ended up just throwing my hat into being a full-time artist now. Um, but definitely did, yeah, change me through all of that. Like just built my confidence a lot more and just because you're just talking to regular ass people like where they're at and about what's going on in their situation like the very grounding um struggle and i think it's just like a good way to sort of see the best in people which i think made me a bit more optimistic in general and just like i'm kind of obsessed with this idea of organic leftists and Mm -hmm. just people that don't necessarily see themselves as you know, lefty or progressive or whatever, but have those values and just sort of seeing the ways that people ha- have each other's backs in informal ways, like just a heartening thing to see all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm I'm already like going into into podcast zone now, but I was thinking about listening to the Trillbillies the other day and like how <laughs> people show, um, they were talking about how people show um, who they really are during a crisis and that kind of, raises these opportunities to actually meet people where they're at when when people are turning inwards towards their communities and you hadn't had the opportunity to see them behave in that way before. Um, and so I was really struck by how deeply hopeful this work is and was wondering if you could speak to the importance of radical hope as a key part of organizing in solidarity and how that sort of threads through your work. Yeah, that, I feel like like we you kind of have to be a little bit hopeful, even if you're not self-aware of it. I think just by stepping into doing some organizing work or campaigning or activism or whatever, it is inherently a hopeful act because you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't bother if you didn't have a little bit of hope in, in people and in the situation. Like even when you're on the back foot, I think. And it's just kind of like, it's, it's not as abstract, especially in, the labor movement, like a lot of organizing can seem abstract and like really situated in the future. And um, I think union organizing is a little bit different because, yeah, it's very much like rooted in the here and now. So I don't know. I feel, I feel like also just I just try to stop getting self-indulgent. Like I compartmentalize stuff if I'm freaking out about the future or mm. where things are headed. I'm just like, well, the future is not just one place, like. There's so many people in different places and stuff. Like, I just break it up into little bits so it's easier to comprehend and like push for stuff. But and yeah, people have, I think, just done that forever. Like all, all the cool stuff that people have achieved. A lot of it's happened when conditions were way worse than they are now. So I just try not to wring my hands too much because yeah, people have done very cool stuff like with a lot less than we have. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it, it does sort of come down to, to believing, um, believing that we can work together and that's how we, we naturally work together as like we're cooperative beings, right? Um, and like trusting and believing in our power to organize and come together and create these massive changes, I think is so important. Um, I'm wondering which Yeah, we already of, do, like, oh, yeah. do that in our workplace. Yeah. And that's what the boss relies, like, they want us to cooperate and get along so as to carry out our work. Mm-hmm. So it's that old meme of like, yeah, we're, we're all a team and then 
the group unionizes and the boss is like, not like that though. But <laughs> like the cooperation is there. Like we all, all the networks of care that we all carry out even after work to have each other's backs and to survive and stuff. Like, yeah, like the Trillbillies, like that image, like how do we just bump that up and make it a bit more concrete? That's the question, I guess. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, like, yeah, I I was gonna ask you which part of the comic you're closest to, or do you love the most? And something that I really loved in the comic. I mean, the artwork is beautiful and so like considered and intentional. And I love the color palettes, and I I just really also love the way that you explore um, what solidarity looks like in practice. Whether it's somebody saying, "Hey, I'll cover your shift," or um, you know, just these really simple things that I thought was like so beautiful and relatable but yeah what 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 was the what's the the closest to your heart in this book i, I know it's hard to pick probably uh thanks for that I, I yeah i like those bits like that like i feel like that's like a very ken loach kind of thing he's always just showing these little gestures that you might not even notice that happens between people throughout every day but i think my my favorite is a bit of a mean a bit like probably the critique and that the limitations chapter where I kind of sink the boot in mm-hmm. to the contemporary state of unions, that was like therapy for me a little bit because I am quite frustrated like at our reluctance to fight and some other aspects like the bureaucratization and just NGOization of class struggle. It annoys me. So that, that chapter was fun. And it was also just fun because it's kind of the most camp and conversational one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there's like a, a bit in that chapter where it talks about how we might have to fight union leadership as much as we fight the bosses. Mm-hmm. And that, that was very cathartic to draw. But I was like, oh, I hope this doesn't really piss off the unions. Yeah, but I mean, like, I think the message in there was also like, sometimes you have to piss off the unions, right? Like, you have <laughs> yeah. to, um, because, you know, it's not about sort of scrapping these modes of organizing, but making sure that they actually run you know, in the spirit that, that they're intended. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Too no. much change the rules, not, not enough break the rules. Exactly. Like, when the union movement has been at low points like this in Australian history, at least, like it's only ever gotten out of them by like mass illegal strikes and mm-hmm. leaders getting locked up and stuff. And it's just very hard to imagine that from where we sit. But I mean, it's still possible. Yeah, what is this protected industrial action? Pa, right? Like we should, we should be yeah. imagining more than that. Yeah, exactly. We really hemmed ourselves in by getting the Labor Party to protect very limited types of industrial action, patting mm. ourselves on the back. Oh, we have this very narrow margin of ways that we're legally protected strike, and now every other method, like you, as a union, you can get fined a million bucks, and as an individual, you can get fined. Like, I think it's eighteen thousand dollars just Jeez. even if you stop work for two minutes. So yeah, yeah something's got to give with the right to strike. That's the, the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely, and it totally like falls into this broader landscape of liberal respectability politics around like trying yeah. to push for the most marginal change. Um, yeah, get a yeah. seat at the table, and yeah, the professionalization does my head in. Yeah, absolutely. What's uh, the, the, there's like an old line like the unity of the of the tiger and the bug happens in the belly of the tiger. <laughs> we can't sit at the table and be equal to the bosses. Like we have to get rid of the table, really. Yeah, totally. Um, 
And I think like my, my second last question for you is I was hoping to hear about how you locate the role of art in revolutionary organizing, because you've done so much excellent work in support of active struggle, including by local and international unions. And you've also done some awesome work for 3CR as well. So thank you from us. Ah, I love 3CR. <laughs> my favorite station. Um, I don't know. I don't really have like any illusions that like art can play a massive role in like it can't supplant actual organizing but I think it can click into it and help communicate some of the core ideas of an effort and and kind of just yeah like we were saying before make it a little bit less abstract because politics is this weird dry floating invisible thing sometimes and it's hard to get a grasp of like you know I don't know why humans are so obsessed with our vision, but like having tangible, visible things just helps us like be like, okay, this is a thing and something I can be proud of and get involved in and I don't know, stick on my wall or my, in my workplace or whatever. Just kind of gives it a little bit more, makes it seem a little bit more real. Yeah. When we're all like very alienated and it's just a way to be like, almost celebrate an effort or, or just like communicate the basic premise of something that people are trying to do in a way that is really digestible and people can remember and stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, um, I think it is. it just comes through so strongly in, in this book, and I'm so excited for more and more people to be able to access it. Um, we're going to have to wrap up in a sec, but just before we go, where can people grab a copy of Our Members Be Unlimited and keep up to date oh. with your work? <laughs> Thank you. This is full Danos Direct. I love it. Thank you. Um, I think it's come, it's, it's the reprint. It just got to the warehouse yesterday, I think. So maybe on the weekend it'll be in bookstores, hopefully. I'm not exactly sure, but very soon. Otherwise, I think the scribe, mm-hmm. scribe publications on their website, you can get a copy. Um, yeah, it should be around from here on. It's been a bit frustrating that it came out and then just hasn't existed. <laughs> so it's cool that it's back in shops soon. Yeah, well, I'm very excited for my hard copy to arrive. Sam, thanks so much for joining us this morning, and all the best with um, with your Sydney launch. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if anyone wants to come next Friday, if it happens to be any Sydney listeners. But, yeah, thanks for what you do as well. Yeah, no worries. Have a great day. All right, you too. Take care. And that was Sam Woolman, comics journalist and cartoonist, who joined us to speak about his powerhouse comic, Our Members Be Unlimited. We're coming up to the end of today's show. Um, shall we do a very quick rundown? Very quick. Uh, first, we were joined. It was a replay of City Limits, um, talking to Catherine Murdoch and the Kobuk Murderin. And then we were joined by Miranda from Inside Out about the Prisoner Solidarity Newsletter. Then we were joined by Liz Strakosh, co-director at the Institute for Collaborative Race Research, about a call to defund the Queensland Police Service. And finally, we were joined by Sam Woolman to speak about Our Members Be Unlimited, which is published by Scribe and uh, will be available again in bookstores soon. We'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.